I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Carnival by Design with a conversation with Brett Woods and Joseph Dangeren about modern architecture. That's it. If you've been listening to the podcast for any part of the last seven years, you understand that you're going to hear different perspectives on design and architecture. I believe that there is truly a language of architecture and that design is about storytelling. I do this podcast because I love discovering new designers myself and thoroughly enjoy introducing them to you. If you're in the biz, it gives you a chance to meet someone whose work might influence or inspire you. If you're an enthusiast, it makes you dream of what's possible. Joseph Dangren and Brett Woods are currently producing future classics in modern design. Full stop. The work they're doing makes use of materials, space, the landscape, and sense of theater. You look at their work and you can see a nod to Schindler or Nitra, but not a byproduct. Their work is unique. It's great. And these are two architects making it. This is Woods and Dangren. Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zanger, a fantastic company and an equally fantastic design partner. While the Walker Zanger brand was built on the promise to inspire designers and architects to do their best work, there's far more to it than that. Yes, that promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. But at the heart is a family-owned and operated business that provides stunning surfaces for a well-designed home and does it to make designers and architects do their best work for their clients. Walker Zanger started in 1952, and they are absolutely one of the best trade partners a designer can have. Check out their newest collaborative line with designer Pieta Donovan, a collection of cement and ceramic tiles inspired by the patterns and colorways of the 1970s and created with a comfortable modernity. Walker Zanger is on the cutting edge of design, featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can create. And they provide homeowners with the materials that dream kitchens and baths are made of. Check out any of their 14 showrooms across the country or shop online, walkerzanger.com. Dot com. It's funny. Do you guys go to modernism often? You know, we went, we went a couple of years. Couple I'm, years up, ago. I'm up there all the time. I'm building the house out there right now. So I'm up there quite a bit. And um, it's, 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 it's changed, right? I mean, it's gotten so much busier, but it's, it's difficult to get on these tours. And, and if you're not ahead of it, there's just, it's so, it's so busy. We went to a couple of, um, what was that? The, uh, the party we went to. Yeah, we went yeah, to, to opening party. To one of the opening parties a yeah. few years ago. The the truth is, Josh, we've and and part of um obviously Houseman, you know, getting involved and getting in touch with you is that we're this is the first time when we're really focusing on kind of outward facing for the firm. So prior prior to this, we've just kind of had our heads down <laughs> working and trying to develop the the assets for the firm that now we can start to promote. So did um we, did this whole did this whole pandemic and, and the way that the way that everything has changed since then is is was that the impetus for this? No, this was we've actually started. Brett and I, you know, we started our business uh, seven years ago officially. Even though a few years before that, we were talking a, a lot about the strategy of it. And honestly, we're right now we have about ten projects, ten major projects in construction or just wrapping up. So it's just that point in our in the life of our firm where we call them kind of second and third generation projects are actually coming yeah. to life. And so a year ago, actually, we 
we did a search for, you know, PR companies that we wanted to work with. And we ended up with, with Tammy and Hausman and, um, that was last October. So we're really just kind yeah. of getting into a groove right now. I think it was also for, for us, it was important to not just put stuff out there for the sake of putting stuff out there. I think we, yeah. we, Joe and I have been really, it's tough, right? Cause you have these assets and you, you, you can get impatient, but I think we have, we together have, have come up with this kind of strategy that let's wait till those assets are ready and let's wait yeah. till we're, we're ready and we've developed a proper strategy for our brand. And so we're not just like throwing things out there and hoping that something sticks. Yeah. Um, so it's been, it's been very, um, I guess, conscious on our, 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 our parts to, to make sure that we, we hired Houseman and, and kind of made this next step into kind of forward facing, um, you know, PR. Yeah. And we've, we've always kind of on that, we've always felt very strongly that whatever work we promote is the work that we will get or, you know, it's, it seems really simple when you say it that way, but when you start off as a firm and you do a, you know, a, a, a guest house or a, or a master bathroom renovation, it's like you, you have that asset and you're like, we want to promote that, but we don't want to do bathroom renovations for the rest of our career. So we've, we've been really strategic about, you know, what we put out there. So funny you say that. And it's really interesting because having, having had these conversations for, for a long time now, Right. I've, I've kind of noticed a couple of things and I will get to this in, in a little bit, but yeah. you know, just sort of a primer for the conversation. I've noticed a couple of things, you know, when I, when I started doing this, I've always been a, a fan of design and architecture. And when I started doing this, I was just so excited to be talking to creatives about something that I'm sure. so passionate about. And I would ask this completely pedestrian question, not stupid question, but it's pedestrian. Like, Hey, what's your style? Right. And it took yeah. time to sort of realize that, um, at least I've, I've come to this conclusion that it's not every good creative, it's not that they have a specific style, it's yeah. that they have a specific fingerprint. There's, there are certain things that you'll be able to find within their work, regardless of style. The good ones yep. can do all kinds of different styles, right? But you'll always see some similarities in their, in their DNA of the work yeah. that they do. That's, Does that that's make very, sense? Uh, absolutely. That's very, uh, that's, that's very intuitive and it's not, it's, it's, it's a, that's a deep understanding of who you're speaking to and, and, and really understanding architecture. So I think that although the, the initial question may be, you know, pedestrian or basic, what you're actually getting at is very, very specific to, to someone's work. And we would, not to jump ahead, but for, for us, we always say, you know, style, we, we have a certain style that we maybe, you know, not revert back to, but that we just have a gut reaction to, right. And that we've been influenced by, and we can kind of get into how we've been influenced, but we would love to work on, you know, an Irving Gill as much as we would love to work on a Neuscher, you know, renovation, it, it good architecture and, you know, historically accurate or consistent, uh, architecture is 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 fun and it, that's the challenge right so we could bounce around from style to style as long as it's as long as it's not a frankenstein right as long as it is it is specific to that style and true to that style well and it, and what's interesting about that and i bring that up because it's germane to the conversation when you say you know you don't you don't want to want to be doing bathroom renovations for your for your you don't want that to be the firm i think that that too is incredibly intuitive and it's good for you to know because what happens, what I've seen so many times is people will start a, a, a firm 
yeah. and believe in their talent and believe in their skill, but you're so desperate just to get the work yeah. that you yeah. start doing whatever you can do, you know, mom's basement and, and, and then you get a bathroom reno and then, and if you promote that and if you put that out there, then all of a sudden you, you it's almost like you're an actor who gets typecast. I was just going to say, it took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, I think what you're referring to with the fingerprint is, is really just philosophy, right? It's like, you know, every firm has a philosophy and, and I think that for us, it's, it's really, about floor plans and, and yeah. i think that's something that we you know the style of the architecture may change from the street but when you walk through one of our floor plans they are consistent you pick up on those like you were talking about those little fingerprints or those little notes that kind of hint that this is part of our philosophy of our office um so yeah, yeah so no. so you both you both were at sc did you meet at sc or yeah is that where you met yeah yeah so we've known each other 19 years come september <laughs> okay and then, and, and from SE, you both went on to, to work at other firms. When did you get, so seven years ago, you started, you started seven, this? Seven years, seven years officially, although, um, well, Brett, seven years officially, but it, it's really been about 10 years of building the practice. So um, I, I actually moved out to, um, to, to Durham, North Carolina for a couple of years with my wife, she was finishing um, business school. And so um, worked for a firm there. And, and when we moved back to LA, it was sort of, that was the kind of the opportunity for, for me to say, you know, this is, this feels like the right opportunity to kind of look at starting uh, my own practice. And I think at the time it was 2006, 2007. So it wasn't exactly the best time. Perfect timing. But, but we, yeah. but actually it, it, it turned out to be perfect timing because it gave us the, the, the opportunity to develop what that brand was and to not rush it and to really, we thought that, and, and, you know, Joe and I started talking, we thought that if we can keep our heads down, this will get better. And if we can kind of develop our brand while other kind of offices, smaller offices are closing, we thought we could then kind of take that place and then kind of hit the ground running, which ultimately happened for us. Um, so for about three years, you know, I was, and Joe and I both were, were building the practice, but Joe was still, Joe was working um, for another practice. So at the time I was sort of running the day to day. Um, and then once Joe kind of left that practice and you know, that's when we kind of uh, established that this was, it was official. Um, that was a kind of the official start date. Right, so we, we became official in, in 2013. Uh, that was the year that I left Marmel Center after being there for five years and seeing you know, at that point, I joined in 2008 and, and left in, in 2013. And so we, you know, I saw and, and the team there saw dramatic changes in that firm and, you know, in the, in, in the Great Recession. And, and we thought that if we kind of built the foundation that we could kind of come out of that and, and start a, a successful practice with a really strong foundation and, that's what happened. And, and we, we thought that the great recession would be the, the most difficult challenge that we would face in our lifetime or career, because that was the most difficult challenge that anyone had seen in a generation. Lo and behold, seven years later, here we are. Well, hang, hang on a second, because yeah. I, I, I want to ask you about that. Because yeah. so the recession yeah. was a financial crisis. Yeah. Right. So so it became a it became a, a, a financial issue where money and liquidity yep. was the problem, which meant right. that people couldn't necessarily do the things that they wanted to do. So where we are now, I mean, if you put them side by side on scale, this is far greater. 
right? Yep. But at the same time, this isn't a liquidity or, or an economic issue. This is something completely different. And it has made people completely reimagine the way that they want to live their lives. That's correct. Is this not, is this not a watershed moment? Is, are we not at the, at, the, at the precipice of something remarkable for design and architecture? Yeah, I mean, design and architecture and, and, and even greater humanity, right? This is the biggest change that-, that Okay, we, whatever. I mean- you know, As a result, and so it's, it's interesting, like when you look at it, you know, in, in March, I remember the day that we, we told everyone that we were gonna move home, right? And that we were gonna, um, because I remember the moment, I remember the moment in my, in, in my time at, at Marmal Radziner when the, the partners got up and, and talked about the Great Recession. And I, I remember that because I was a very young and impressionable architect. And so when we had that moment here in our firm, I, I, and we both felt that that was the time for leadership to really, to really come through and you know, lead, lead our team into whatever that watershed moment was going to be. And, and that was you know, March, March 12th or March 13th or whatever. But yeah, the world has changed. There hasn't been this great of a change to day-to-day life since World War II, really. So um, how does that impact design and architecture? Well, people are stuck at home, right? And so people have never thought more critically or been forced to think more critically about how it is that they live, the environment that they, the built environment that they surround themselves in. And so people are, are, are really thinking about how they want to live, which is what we've been discussing with our clients since, since the beginning of our practice. How do you want to live? How do you imagine your life together with, with, your, with your spouse, with your, with your family? How do you want your day-to-day to, to be in this environment? And, you know, we always talk about natural materials, natural light, ventilation, all those things that, that for us were, were just common sense people are now realizing that, that they may not have had that in the design of their, their space. And so now they're moving to find that. And so there is, there's a rush on housing right now. Yeah, well, what's interesting too is, you know, if you look back at 1918, 1919, 1920, after, after the Spanish flu, you had some massive changes. You know, you, you went from, from that whole uh, um, all wood in bathrooms with the with the with the chamber pots and you know just oh right yep. that's if you were lucky enough to have indoor plumbing yep. but it changed the man people really started to look at it and they started to look at new materials and new ways of, of doing things and to your point um I, i'm curious how it's changed your approach and at the same time you know like so i've i've had a i've had a home studio for seven, eight years now. Um, I've, I've got the, at the same time, when I'm recording, I record on days that I know the trash truck isn't coming. Of course. I, I record early enough so that street sweeping doesn't yep. happen yet. I know when every one of my neighbor's gardeners comes. So I record, you know, I have to pick my schedules, right? But it, what's interesting is, to your point, um, water, air, light, noise, I mean, all of these things are now affecting what, what, what clients would actually come to you and say, hey, I've, I want to change the way this is going on. How has that changed your approach to design or has it? Maybe you did this before. No, I think we did. But I think the, the biggest change was, I think, well, first of all, when this happened, I think we were worried about how it would change our process with not being in an office, similar to what you're saying. We were trying to, you're sort of scheduling your day around kind of, uh, certain noises and, and things that maybe we didn't worry about when we were in an office and, and had a conference room. And 
Um, and I think the collaboration, so I think we were really worried about what that looked like for us. I think, let's be honest, if this happened 15, 20 years ago, I think architects would be in a much different place because technology has afforded us the ability to, you know, within a day, within a day, we had all of our team in their apartments up and running with their desktops, phones connected to the server, sharing files as if they were sitting next to each other. The one thing you do miss is the, is kind of the, the creative kind of collaboration. I mean, those are the things that, you know, that can be challenging, but I think that we have been kind of pleasantly surprised at how efficient we have become um, during this process. And in fact, we really haven't in, in many ways, we've become more efficient. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's something that we, you know, we feel very grateful for in, in this profession that we have even the kind of opportunity to, to sustain a business while this sort of pandemic is happening. Yeah. And in terms of the way that we approach design, I think that really a, a worldwide event like this, I think just gives us more confidence in what we have been doing from a design approach. We've, we've always taken the approach, the more vernacular approach of, of kind of regional architecture, whether it's out in Palm Springs or it's in, you know, Los Angeles area or, 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 or elsewhere, we've always tried to draw inspiration on the, the vernacular or the regional and more, you know, uh, passive green technologies than active. We've, we've always tried to rely on, you know, just good site planning, solar orientation, overhangs to the south and, and large windows to the north and cross ventilation and prevailing winds and, and all those things that to us just make sense from an architecture standpoint, whether, um, you know, whether a client's asked us specifically to do that or not. But I think that, that clients are, you know, responding to this and really talking about, okay, well, in, in many of our recent conversations, well, we're going to provide a home office in the, in the home. Should we provide two? Where should those be? Should one be more forward facing towards the street? Should one be more private? Are they connected to the master suite? Are they disconnected, separate from the, the main house structure? So you still have that, that distance of, you know, that, that, that sequence or that ritual of walking out of the home, across some landscape, across the swimming pool and into your separate office, even though you're still on your property. So, um, you know, it, it's those kind of subtle things that, um, that are starting to be driven in the conversation. Well, one of our, Josh, to your point, really about kind of the clients and, and to Joe mentioning this as well, kind of questioning how they live right today, because we're in, we're, we're stuck in our homes. And so it forces us to kind of be critical thinkers about how we're living and, and if, you know, how, what do we want to change? And one of our clients recently, they, they moved to a different state and um, during the pandemic and I had not talked to him for a couple of months and called them and, I asked him how he's doing. He's like, well, we're selling our home and we're, we're, we're buying a new home. And I said, why are you buying? I said, didn't you just buy this home? It's beautiful. It's in this historic district and it's this gorgeous old home with these big oaks. And I was like, you guys are so happy there. It's such a beautiful home. He's like, yeah. He's like, uh, you know, when my wife started going through the pandemic, um, realized she wanted modern amenities. And that was for her, that was her watershed moment of, I need to now, you know, I need to get into a place that makes, if I'm going to be here, I need to be in a place that makes me feel comfortable. Um, and so they sold their home and moved into a, a newer, more modern home because those, those amenities meant something more to her um, from her day-to-day -day kind of use of the, of the space. So um, there you isn't, go. It in, isn't it interesting? Uh, if, if, we could, if we could draw just, just one thing from, from this, 
in, in my opinion, it's that it's made people actually think about what it is that they truly want. Yeah. In, instead of, you know, what's going to make the, the Joneses across the street jealous that you have, right? Or, you know, or something that you can put on Facebook or Instagram or, you know, how cool is this? It's like, what do I, what do I really want here? And, and to your point, you know, working at home, I have one of those, thre- we have a small house in, in, at the beach, but I've got yeah. one of those thresholds between the house and the studio. So I know I get that, I get that mental switch, yeah. right? When I walk out to your point, yeah. I think it's really interesting. One of, one of the subtleties of this is being able to think this through and say, okay, we've got a, we've got a home office. They're going to be working from here, but they're also going to be relaxing by the pool. Maybe we don't have a sight line from That's the great. pool to the office. That's right. You know, and you're thinking through all these things. How do you approach the challenge? Is that fun for you? Is that the fun part of this? Yeah, it's the fun part. And that's, I think, for us, when we started the practice, I think we naturally were just drawn towards custom residential. One, because it's, it's a lot easier to break in to, to, and start your firm with doing residential, right? But for, for us, we, the design is the easy part, I guess, for us. That's, that's what we've been trained to do. I think one of the things that our firm does successfully is we really try to establish a, a personal relationship with our clients. And by doing that, we, we are almost more psychologists in trying to extract from them the information that they may not know that they need to communicate to us in order for us to design them a home that works for them. Because it's, it's, it's not just about how they've lived. How do you aspire to live? What do you, what do you want your lifestyle to be? We always you know, tell our clients that we want to design for the lifestyle, not that you have right now, but that you want to have. And you may not know what that is yet but through conversations early in the design process and in some ways showing or proving an option or disproving an option is really a, a, a valid, uh, a valid exercise. So Dis- disproving is probably more important yeah. than proving, yeah. you know, from our, from our perspective, because we ask our clients, you know, tell us what you don't like. Yeah. Don't tell us what you like because we, yeah. that's easy for us. Tell us what you don't like. What do you want to avoid? What is it? that makes you, you know, shiver, you know, because you don't like it. You know, what, those are the things that we're trying to pull out of a client that are important. And I think it's funny. They're sort of shocked every time we ask them, tell us what you don't like. Don't tell us what you like. Because to Joe's point, design's easy. And I think for us, it comes easy to us. And we've been trained for this. So we know how to, we know how to ch- check the boxes of the likes, right? We, we, need, we need to understand how to avoid the dislikes, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and I totally get it. And it's fun too, which is why... Um, I want to go to some of the work yeah. and talk to you about some of the work itself. And, and I want to start with, um, and I, w- I went to your website and I would encourage uh, folks listening, if you want to go see what they do, go to the website, but they don't provide a lot of pictures for you. You're going to get, you're going to get a static. You're going to get a, uh, so we're going to, we're going to go in depth here a little bit. Do you put more imagery on Instagram? Is that where you put the majority of your project? Yeah, we're kind of splitting right now. Um, you know, like like we talked about earlier, we have a lot of projects in construction. So uh, I'd say, I don't know what percentage, but a good amount of the work on the website are are professional renderings that that we've provided um, prior to projects being completed. And so a lot of the work has five or six images because those are those are in progress. And then we do supplement those with um, with work on Instagram. Um, one thing to note, Josh, is that we are about to uh, 
um, kind of launch an update of our website with a okay. lot more. Okay, all right, fair enough. Um, a, lot of, a lot of floor plans, a lot of drawings, because we are very, very floor plan driven. Uh, and we want to communicate to our clients and potential clients how a home kind of feels in floor plan. Um, but yeah, Instagram's an interesting, an interesting um, avenue to- Love it, uh, love it and hate it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It takes time. It takes a lot of time to, to yeah. cultivate that, that work on Instagram. Yeah, yeah I think we're, we, we often say we, we kind of separate um, our projects in the way that we communicate them on the website through experiential or explanatory. And I think that we tend to kind of fall into the experiential kind of bucket. Um, so a lot of our, our renderings and, and, and those, those shots that you're seeing on the website really are trying to communicate an emotion of how you would actually view the space or use the space or you know, perceive the space. I think that's something that we made a decision a long time ago that it's less about kind of showing you everything that you never see, but really kind of how does the user experience the space. And so you tend to get less of those shots because you know, um, they're few and far between sometimes in projects, but, um, but certainly it's, it's a nice uh, observation you had of, of the website. It's, it's definitely been, it's, it's intentional. Let's we, just say we that. also want to tease more, Josh. We want someone <laughs> to pick up the phone and say, Hey, I want to see more. Show us more. I, I totally get it. And by the way, this, this being a podcast, you know, I, I have, I have my, and my background's in broadcast. I, I know the, you know, theater of the mind telling the yeah. story. I'm yeah. all about it. I'm all yeah. about it. It's great. Yeah. Um, so, but I want to lead into a couple of these and I want sure. you to talk me through them. And I'm, I'm going to start with um, the Truesdale residence. Yep. So I'm starting with this for a couple of reasons. First of all, I do, I, st I still love mid-century yeah. modern. I, I am a huge fan. Um, I love the vision. I love the throwback to Bauhaus. I love just sort of the whole idea of, of what, it's, what it's about um, and, and the things. And what I find interesting is when I get to see modern creatives and their vision of sort of, I don't want to call it bettering, right? But modifying with, yeah. with, a, with a new twist. So yeah. the Truesdale residence, the, the image that you have here is of that Waldor, because I, lo I love, I absolutely love that. So t will you take me through, this is, this is a restoration. Yeah, correct. A, a couple of things. First of all, when you approach a project like this, historic zip code, historic street, historic architect, um, wh what's the pressure and what's the idea behind it and how did you guys approach this particular project? It's, it's funny, I'll, let, I'll, I'll give a little intro and then I'll let Brett, Brett go in a little more depth because he actually managed this, this project. But we, we love Truesdale, um, the neighborhood of Truesdale in uh, the Truesdale Estates in Beverly Hills. It's, it's great as a little you know, mid-century enclave where you have a lot of art collectors, single story homes. Some lots have views, some don't. This, this one does not have a view, but this was, uh, was, was designed by Rex Lottery and who's on the master architect list of, of, um, of Beverly Hills and was an original business partner of Ray Cappy. So there's a lot of history there. And um, I guess to, to answer the question, 
I don't think we feel pressure. We get excited. Exactly. We get passionate that's about it. Perfect. Yeah. And um, I'll, I'll let yeah. Brett, Brett take, it, think, take it away I from think this, this home is, it's, it's great. This is one of the first, you know, this is one of the kind of first generation homes that Joe refers to kind of first generation, second generation. I think this home has a lot of love and passion behind every little move because the home was in such um, bad shape. It was in really, really poor shape. Um, you know, Rex Lottery, you know, his typical kind of iconic pop-ups were all around the house, but over time, previous and past, I'm sorry, past owners were kind of changing the, the vernacular of the, of the space and, and also kind of, um, in a way, doing a disservice to the architecture. As we know, kind of the, the 80s, 90s come through and people think, you know, as these, these trends happen, they started to, um, to, to kind of make it feel like a 90s home or an 80s home. And I think by the time we got to it, it really was a tear. It was a tear down, right? I mean, the house was, the waterproofing was a mess. There was, you know, there were walls that were structurally rotted. Um, and so when we, we took the skin off of this home, really for us, it was about one, preserving the, the, the kind of history and the architectural lines of the home. Um, and then two, you know, Rex Lottery, one thing Joe and I both, love about Rex Lottery is he has this sort of tropical modernism where these graphic, you know, blacks and antiques. And so I think what you're seeing in these pictures and most people don't know is that it was very intentional to use a black fascia and kind of these graphic elements with the kind of tea cabinetry and the cedar walls to kind of, to sort of like a nod to, to Rex Lottery and to make sure this home would speak to what maybe Rex would do today um, if, if he was given the same opportunity with this home. Um, but this home really for us is, you know, it was a passion project because um, I feel like we did a lot for this home with a, a very limited budget. Um, and I think that was something that we're really proud of and it's something we fought really hard for and, and it's communicated in the space. It's funny. It's one of those homes where, when we walk a client, the potential client through, they all love it because yeah. it's so approachable. So if you're a person that loves modernism or a person that doesn't love modernism, both of those people can walk through that home and equally appreciate it. Um, and I think that's, that's sometimes the definition or the, of, of a successful home architecturally is that it speaks to not just a very specific group, but kind of the masses. I think you use some materials here too, because you have so much warm wood Yep. against you know i don't want to call it a cold modern no exterior no. but but it, you know it, with that and the blacks and the whites you you have sort of this balance between between you know warm and cool um tell me about the door the which door so it, it this is not a wall right this is a door that i'm looking at maybe it's oh. not no, that's actually, we've had that question before. Is that a that's wall? Actually, that's a wall. That's a cedar. Oh, okay. Your wall that has, that has doors on either side, but it looks as if it could rotate. I know. Yeah. It, it <laughs> totally looks like it's yeah. a, like, like yeah, it's on it a, pivot. Like a large pivot door. Okay. So, so it, it's not though. No, but that's, you know, that's one of the beauties of, <clears> and, and, and you reference, you know, you reference Bauhaus and the international style being, you know, heavily influencing mid-century modernism and modernism in the U S and, that right there is a is a planar move that has been directly taken from the Bauhaus and from, um, you know, from Mies van der Rohe, and and it's and instead of is in the the Barcelona Pavilion, instead of being clad in marble, it's clad in cedar. But spatially, it does it does something very powerful in defining the family room from the living room. It's open yet somewhat defined in private. Takes your eye out to the back to the swimming pool. So there's these 
plan uh, plan moves again back to the kind of floor plan orientation that a single wall with a roof in the opposite direction you know being supported on it makes it look as if that wall can move it, it defies gravity in a lot of ways it it totally does yeah. um, so okay so on the, what I'm looking at then is do you have glass that yes. comes out to me okay so yep. it's glass that comes out to meet it in the middle yep Okay. But, but that's a really good point because also when we get down to the details of these homes, one of the things that we do, and I think the architecture and design profession does right now, is we take modernism, we take mid-century modernism, and, and we hold it up to this pedestal, you know, uh, put it on this pedestal as if it's being built in, in today's time with today's technology and today's craft and, and today's budgets. And that just wasn't the case. These homes were built very quickly, very cost effectively. And that's why they're in bad shape right now. They pushed ideas forward and they used cutting edge technology, but that technology hasn't lasted. But so the beauty is the spatial yeah. kind of quality of the space, right? So, yeah. so right, Joe's right. These things are typically when we get our hands on them, they're kind of a mess. And, um, you know, the systems are not updated. They don't really function as a home day to day. But what makes them so beautiful and unique and what people are so attracted to is the spatial quality is so perfect. And, you know, to Joe's point, they were challenging the way floor plans work, the way we lived in a home. And so I think it's, it's amazing because today we still live in a very similar way, which speaks to the success of that development in the floor plan. Um, in mid-century uh, architecture. Well, and I imagine too, that for you, it, it's also exciting because a lot of these architects, you know, from, from this, especially mid-century modern and, and before that, but they didn't, I don't want to say they didn't think it through, but <laughs> the, flat, the flat roof, for example, you know, if you, if you look at Neutra, right, in the desert in Southern California, where you'll have baking sun, yep. and then you'll have rain and cool, and so you, it cracks, it's notorious for leaks. Yeah. Right. It's notorious for, for, so you guys get to come in and sort of ideate on how to actually, better. yeah. One of the first, one of the first projects that I worked on at, at Marmar Radziner was, um, was the VDL house was Richard Neutra's personal home in Silver Lake in Silver Lake. And okay. So I, I toured it. I walked through it. I did the whole thing. I, I want you, I love this. I want your take on this. Yeah. So, so Leo, it was funny, Leo at one of the meetings asked if anyone wanted to, to volunteer time on, on nights and weekends because they were doing it pro bono. And of course <laughs> I raised my hand as a, you know, 2000, 2008, just joined the firm. I'll work on Pointer's home. Sure. So we spent a year doing waterproofing details and looking at the, the, the biggest challenge. And we faced this on, on the Truesdale home, Rex Lottery. It's a perfect example. How do you, in a flat roof, which in the in the 30s 40s and 50s they were built very very flat not even now we call a flat roof a quarter inch or a half inch slope these these roofs didn't have slopes they relied strictly on the waterproofing as as ponding and that was the intention in the design of the vdl house with the of with course the to have all to have all it the was, reflecting pools yeah it was a pond. yeah so the challenge that we face when we get these homes to to renovate and restore is how do you take a really thin fascia often you know eight inches deep which is very thin how do you introduce roof slope and not increase the fascia depth for mechanical and plumbing and, and how do you how do you get mechanical in these homes so those are the challenges and so um waterproofing is how do you introduce slope how do you get positive fall to drains that's one of the first things we look at in every home because you can't invest millions of dollars inside the home if you don't protect it from the top. Well, I think, Josh, you're talking about this. I mean, the, 
we are lucky in a sense that technology has developed so quickly and allows for us to use flat roofs and to feel confident. Um, it, you know, in a way, Neutras and the Schindlers, they were sort of ahead of their time. And so technology wasn't necessarily there for them to, to, to do the flat roofs. Um, but today, you know, we have such great technology and um, thinner line mechanical systems that allows for us to kind of make these homes work and the flat roofs be successful. And, and they're, to, to everyone out there that may not be an architect or designer, just because we say they're flat, they're not really flat. Right. They're just not visibly slow. Visually flat. <laughs> right? We have, we have a quarter inch or half inch per foot behind. And... Well, and, there's, and by the way, if, if you're looking at the VDL house and you've got, you've got ponding on yep. what each of the three levels yep. and there's water filling it, yep. you're not going to be able to tell that there's a quarter inch no, and the reason that on, on the VDL house at the roof, we designed and, and Neutra had designed and we had updated uh, uh, essentially what amounts to be the, the, the drain stopper in a bathtub. You have a stopper on the roof, you have a low point, and when you fill, when you fill the bathtub or the roof, you have the, the, the stopper in, and when you want to you you know, drain it, you pull the, you pull the plug. <laughs> And the, the other thing that I'm going to say about this, and I don't want to dwell on, on the VDL house, yeah. although, although one could for hours and hours, <laughs> as, yeah. as genius as this was, it was by no means perfect. So you've got balconies with no railings that are, you know, three-story drops. You've, no. got, you've got Dione's room, which is, you know, designed as a, as a, as a on a ship, uh, you know, a, yeah. a, a, a yeah. cabin space yeah. tiny tiny you've got yeah. the you've got this this as you walk up to the third floor and the last thing i'll mention aside from the elevator which has no business being there is this you walk up you have to put up a, 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 oh, yeah. a piece no, of wood to get up to, and if you forget to lock it you're yeah. going to get a concussion yep oh yeah yeah no these <laughs> these but but that but that goes back to you know neutra and this is getting a little deep in in architectural philosophy but that's Neutra's influence by, uh, by Le Corbusier and, and his seven points of architecture, which is influenced by technology and industry and, you know, ships and nautical architecture. So all those things are really interesting. Um, best, I think the, the most interesting fact for me of the, working on the VDL house is that Irving Gill, or no, excuse me. Um, oh, man, I just lost his name. Um, anyway, I'll come back to Gregory Ain. Gregory Ain used to work for, for Neutra, and him and his wife, when they first got married, actually lived in the basement, which was the studio of the VDL house. I, I just love that because that just shows the progression of, of the generational aspect of, of architecture in LA. And one of the things Schindler that- Neutra. Right, Schindler and Neutra lived in the Schindler house together when, when Neutra first moved over. Um, we love that because in going to USC, kind of bringing it back to LA, being trained in, in true modernism um, at U USC, we feel it's our duty to be a part of restoring and keeping these, these you know, landmark homes and structures in Los Angeles. We feel that we're a part of the community. We should pay that forward. And I think we're, we're on that uh, very passionately. Our team is on that very passionately. We've, we've recently renovated uh, two uh, Craig Elwood homes here in LA. We're working on a, um, a Buff and Hensman in, in the desert on Palm Springs. We've worked on this Rex Lottery home that's on the website. So we, we love this. It's, it's one of our, our passions for sure. 
It's so great. And, you know, side note, and the last thing I'll say about Schindler and Neutra, who yeah. I like to call the Burton Ernie of classic architecture. Could you? <laughs> That's good. Could you? Wait, which one's, which which one's yeah, Bert and which one's yeah, Ernie? Yeah. Well, see, so I'm thinking <laughs> that, you know, Schindler was like, was like just a party animal, right? Neutra was like this, he was like Bert. I mean, yep. you really, right? <laughs> and so I just imagine what these parties were like. Well, they're, anyway. Um, That's really good. That's really yeah. good. So the other project I wanted to ask you about, again, so this one, you, you worked on the architecture. This is the Blue Jay Way resident. Yeah. yeah. Again, iconic street. Yes. Views for days. Yes. Because, because you, you did the architecture on this and you had so many different elements. I mean, this is, a, this, to me, I'm speculating, but this seems like a really technical design. That's interesting. Um, well, the site planning, I, I, it's interesting that you, that you use that terminology because uh, we were actually, our, our clients selected us after going through what they called a bake-off or a, or, a, or a concept design with, uh, with some well-established firms in the city. Uh, we were selected after the bake-off, which was a really big deal for us at that, at that point in time. It's a beautiful project, 13,000 square feet. One of the reasons that we were selected, I think, was that our approach to the site planning was so unique relative to the, the other uh, firm's approach. This is a two-story structure from the street, sloping street. It's a single-story facade, very long frontage, very, very planar uh, frontage, planar language. And, and then we were able to utilize the swimming pool and one large retaining wall to provide a 7,000 square foot yard on a hillside, which, on, is, which is unheard of for unheard a of. single lot. I, I think the clients challenged us and said, look, we, we want kids, we have dogs, and we live on this hillside. And so, you know, outdoor space is, is critical to us. And I think most architects would approach it like a, it's probably a typical LA hillside where you're stacking these bars and you have these decks and you have this pool and, and that's it. And it's sort of a one-liner. And I think that, um, you know, Joe and I, when we, we looked at this sort of bake-off as an opportunity to, to kind of flex our kind of design muscles from a, from a site planning standpoint, I think, you know, when we presented to the clients that, you know, this, this opportunity to not just give you this beautiful home, but yet we're going to give you also a, a yard that most double lots in the hillside don't even have. Yeah. And, and, and we're going we're gonna to do it by, by achieving it with this 120-foot-long pool that's going to then retain the earth and that's going to actually provide you with this new pad. And so um, I think that was sort of, that, that is a very technical side of this yes. home. Maybe it's not seen necessarily from the street or, or most people that walk through the home wouldn't quite understand that. But for us, that was, we're, we're most sort of proud of that, of that move. Um, and, and this was a good example where in, in that, you know, initial phase, we, we showed the client what the quote unquote typical approach to the hillside would be. So we disproved relative to our proposed solution. We said, this is the typical approach. These are the reasons why it's typically done. And these are the reasons why it won't work for you. This is our approach. This is our suggestion. And it has some specifics. However, it really achieves your goal of having a large yard space. We, we also were able, we're really proud of it to work within the code and avoid a haul route in, in the hillside because we left 
um, most of the soil on site, which is a big deal in the, in the hills, both from a, a processing schedule standpoint, from a construction cost standpoint, from a construction schedule. So for, I think this is a really good project that you referenced because it's much more than the design, right? The design is, is in our mind, beautiful on the surface. Um, but what has enabled the design is really a rich knowledge of hillside code of really establishing what the client's goals are from the very beginning. It's so much more than just a beautiful design. It, it is. And there's other things, you know, that, that really caught my eye too. It's, it's, it's the use of space. There's a, a lot of concrete here, but yeah. there's, but there's also a lot of glass, which yeah. opens, which opens everything up and allows the light. It doesn't, it gives it this, this element of, 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 of appearing light. It, it feels light to me. And, and also one of the really interesting things too, and maybe it's not as common as it, as it used to be, but you also did what you needed to do to avoid the, the, the big posts that would be there to support the, yeah. um, the balcony. You yeah. know, that patio, you, you avoided the posts and that's probably, I'm assuming the pool is underneath that. Which is which is how you how you manage to do right. that, but that's that's a huge difference because if you drive through the canyons, you'll see all the houses from the from the you know as early as the fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, where they all have those 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 beams, those posts, yeah. and to not have that is it just adds it's almost it it's it's addition by subtraction. Uh, exactly, I think that's that's well said. I think for us kind of touching on that from, from the elevational standpoint. I mean, Joe and I often refer to a lot of our work in our elevations as non-elevations, right? These are, these are elevations that are so simple. Um, and, you know, we don't want to capture your, you know, um, intrigue from the street. We want to get you in the house. We want to kind of tell that story like we, we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation. Um, so for us, it's, it's, it's really kind of our, our elevations are really this sort of subdued, really confident approach to, uh, simplifying the architecture, but once you get inside, I think that's where it starts to kind of unfold and become this sort of technical and this really kind of beautiful light structure that maybe the the, the front of the house didn't quite give you that, um, you know. Well, or, yeah, it's a few it's a few different things working on 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 many levels. One is that most of our clients are very private people, and their privacy is is very important. And and the homes I think that we design for them represent their personalities in the sense that we don't try to call a lot of attention to the front elevation. We almost consider the front elevation of these homes as, as almost a non-elevation. They should be beautiful when you stop and look at them, but we don't, we don't want our architecture to, to call attention to itself or, or you know, we, we, we like that kind of discrete luxury of, of the homes and that privacy. And um, one, one person described our architecture as, as not being fast, right? It's, it's not fast architecture. It's not, it's not trying to, to, to call attention to itself. Uh, it, it should be beautiful and well-crafted when you look at it, but it shouldn't scream at you and say, hey, hey, look at me, I'm over here, right? How do you define your work? Well, I, I think it's, it's more modernism. I think it's modernism with, with natural materials. I think one, one through line from all of our work are natural materials. We, we try to rely on, on nature for color, for texture, for scale, and, and that's a big part of it. But we are, we are modernists. We are, influenced, we are influenced by mid-century modernism, but we consider ourselves modernists. Um, the way that we approach design is from a modernist standpoint. 
Do you feel like modernism, specifically mid-century, specifically here in Southern California, but do you, do you feel like modernism has, has room to continue to grow? I mean, not, as, not, as in, not from the intellectual standpoint, because clearly it does, but the outward perception, you know, sometimes when you, when you say like, what keeps, what keeps modernism from, from being uh, Mediterranean? You know, because you say Mediterranean in Southern California, you, people just recoil, right? How do you do that? I think, I think it's tough because, you know, we're def we defend modernism, but I think modernism has a PR problem on some level, right? And I think yeah. that, I think, it, and it's a lot of just misconception out there. And I think that what Joe is referencing regarding our work and this warm modern, I think modernism doesn't have to be cold. I think people in their brains, they think modernism, cold, glass, you know, um, you know, uncomfortable, and we think the opposite. You know, you walk through one of our homes, Joe's right, you're gonna, it's really tactile in nature, you're going to feel the kind of warmth in the natural materials. We want to make sure that this feels like a home. It's modern and it's clean and, and, it, and it philosophically is in line with modern architecture. But Joe and I are always aware that people have to live in these spaces. Yeah. And so, you know, for us, it's important that these, these homes feel like they're homes, that a family can live in it, that they have kids, they have dogs, and these things have to actually function. And so that's the balance. I think to your point about the intellectual side versus kind of the more kind of maybe public side of, of uh, how people interpret modernism, I think that the way that modernism will continue to thrive would be approaching modernism as if people live in these spaces and they're not just beautiful like, art pieces. I think that's maybe the way that from a, like a non-intellectual side or maybe a, or an academic kind of, I guess I should say academic conversation um, where modernism would, I think, would thrive. Um, it, the challenge is getting over that, that kind of PR of what modernism really is as somebody because you can, you can, you know, you look at our work and Joe knows this about me. I, I actually hate when people say that your work is contemporary because it's right. not. Right. Our work is modern, it's not contemporary. Contemporary and modernism often they, they get blurred together in conversations, but they're very different. Yeah. And so I think Joe and I are very passionate about distinguishing that we are modernists and that we're not contemporary architects. Yeah, I think for- As you say that, I'm thinking like, oh, he's a, he's a, classic, a classical modernist. <laughs> and we would, and we yeah, would, we we would take that, okay. would take that as, a, as a compliment, 100%. I mean, for, for us, modernism is about honesty. It's about honesty of structure. It's about honesty of materiality. It's honesty of, of you know, life and lifestyle. Um, one thing I think that there is a distinction between a modernist approach or a classically or classical modernist approach to contemporary would be structure. We try to be very, very efficient from a structural standpoint in the design of our buildings, um, not just visually, tectonically, but also from a cost standpoint. We want you know, and we, we believe that the systems that the, the physical systems that these homes rely on, like structure, mechanical, all these, all, you know, plumbing, drainage, all these systems have to work in concert together to have a successful project. And so we design those. We design the structural system before our structural engineers even get involved. We understand the span, spans of steel, and we don't, we don't rely on, on an engineer for that from the conceptual standpoint, because it's critical that those posts or lack of posts are a part, are a part of the architecture. So that's the kind of tectonic nature of, of modernism versus let's say contemporary architecture where 
you know, we want buildings to float. We don't want to see any columns at all. We want, in some ways, these spans to be so long that maybe they're a little physically jarring to someone standing on the balcony above where they start to defy gravity. We don't, we don't see gravity as the enemy. We see it as, as a force that we want to work with, but in a beautiful way. And that, that to us is, is true modernism, classical modernism. Well, well, look, there's a reason why people are attracted to mid-century modernism because, you know, it, it, it's timeless, right? And I think that people throw that word around a lot today. And I think that um, one thing about, you know, real modernist homes, these are the homes that people want to restore, yeah. right? Because they have this soul and they have this, this consistent language that you know, which is a little bit of elbow grease and some money, you can make, bring these things back to life and they can just flourish for another 20, 30, 40 years. Um, that's just the definition. I think Joe and I always talk about, it. it'd be really great that, you know, 40, 50 years from now, someone or, or is, 80, 100 years, is, yeah. is driving around the city and they say, you know, they buy one of our, our homes and they say, you know, this is a Woods Dang Aaron home. I don't want to tear this down. We want to restore it. Yeah. So I think that's something that's really, really we're passionate about. Yeah, what's the legacy, the legacy, not of the legacy of Woods Dan Garen, but what's the legacy of the home that our clients are building for themselves, right? What is that legacy? Um, and, and, and by that, then clients also get passionate, invest more so that you have these, these you know, more sustainable materials, longer standing, you know, materials and and uh, that will stand the test of time, not just from a design standpoint, but from a physical standpoint. One last thing. I think the difficulty today is with technology and new materials everywhere, it's very hard to be disciplined. I think it's very easy to be experimental. And I think that that's the challenge today. I think it's, it's finding that discipline and being restrained in kind of your approach, knowing that there's tons of materials coming out every single day that are really exciting and, and it's a new material. But you know, to, to Joe's point, it's really about these kind of natural materials are found, um, you know, and, and I think that that's sort of our approach really in, in our office, which can maybe be boring to some, but, you know, exciting to others. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I don't think there's anything boring about your work. And um, I, I love looking at it. I'm sure living in it is, uh, is a joy as well. And this was great. I, I appreciate the time. Yeah, uh, going through this, guys. You're you're great, and I appreciate the time. Thank you. Yeah, Thank of course. You, we could we could keep. Uh, yeah. It's already been already been an hour. We keep talking uh, <laughs> clearly a long time, so we enjoy it. Josh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Brett. Thank you, Joseph. I enjoyed our time together. I'm looking forward to seeing what's next. Thank you for listening, downloading, and subscribing to the show. Join in the conversation at Convo by Design with an X on Instagram. And while you're there, check out our amazing partner at Walker Zanger. You can also find everything you need at ConvoByDesign.com. Thank you for listening, downloading, and subscribing to the show, because without you, there is no Convo by Design. Be well, and until next week, keep creating. 